a card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just the next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host of our podcast, our post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner, and I'm a co-host and collaborator with my colleagues Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow and Cade Massey, all of the Wharton School of Business, and we put together our show concentrating on sports and sports analytics. The post-game podcast will break down the week's top takeaways. We had one guest this past week, Matthew Reicher, who is the head athletic trainer and exercise scientist for New York Sports Science Lab. As a way of background, that is one of the forefronts of the application of statistics to sports and athletics in general, is to collect data about athletic performance, have it analyzed in a lab, and have medical doctors and, and other exercise physiologists try to figure out what is the best way to increase performance from an athlete. So in our first clip, uh, Matthew Reicher is going to be talking about some of the misconceptions about training. Is more always better? No, it's not true. It's one of the biggest myths and misconceptions. And what we do here is preach the recovery. The body cannot sustain the more is better concept. The rest is imperative. And I'm not even talking about the aging athlete. I'm talking about every athlete as a whole. So a couple of things that we do here, we preach the recovery modalities that we have, whether it's a sports massage, we utilize whole body cryotherapy, which has a lot of therapeutic benefits. To I know recovery. LeBron James is a big uh, believer in that. He is. Many, many professional athletes are, are big believers in it. Really, really helps with the recovery time. Another thing we do is we help monitor the sleeping patterns of our athletes, and we're really on top of them as far as getting enough sleep. To me, that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to recovery is that quality sleep and if an athlete is getting enough. Because there are numbers out there that say once you have that diminished sleep pattern under four, three hours, your reaction time, hand-eye coordination, and timing really, really significantly drop. So this is actually a really great uh, set of talking points, beginning with the observation that more is not better, that less is better, and that your body needs to rest. Of course, many athletes have debated this for a long time. Trainers have debated this for a long time. And this seems to be more and more at the forefront of increasing performance, making sure that your body isn't overtaxed. And uh, we see that a lot with athletes that take off breaks. Serena Williams, she took off a break. Uh, Roger Federer takes breaks. And we're talking just more than breaks from training, but breaks from competition. We don't know exactly what the consequences are, but breaks are really important. This also preach the importance of sleep and rest. I know that as a sleep researcher, this is something that is increasingly at the forefront of our academic knowledge, the importance of sleep and good sleep and rest. And then he tossed out this cryotherapy. This is something that I think has to be still largely unproven. Cryotherapy, of course, is when they stick you in these ice cold tanks for a few minutes. And apparently the major athletes, uh, Eric pointed out that LeBron James is a big fan of that. And the exercise trainers argue that it is, a, it is useful. And that goes along with massage. So all these important components of working out really hard and then matching it with the appropriate rest is the latest trend, I believe, and that's how things are going. Our next clip is uh, Matt talking about how things have changed and how things relate to injury prevention. 
15 years ago with the sports medicine department, you had a strength and conditioning coach who you know, wanted to get the guys bigger and stronger and help to mitigate any injuries. You had the athletic trainers who really were there to you know, help prevent injury, but really just to take care of the athlete when they get injured. That has changed dramatically now. It's, it's more of a holistic department. And when you add that sports science component in, it's the athletic trainers, the strength and conditioning coaches, and the sports science department all working together to not only rehabilitate and get the guy stronger, but it's to, to prevent those injuries. And so that sports science department is really going to be key in monitoring the data to help prevent injury. So they'll utilize technology such as GPS so they can really monitor the athlete's loads. And another technology that's widely used is heart rate variability. So they can look at how the athlete's heart rate is changing due to the increased demand of the training. So as a statistician who deals with data and ultimately the judgment behind the data, have you proved something? I'm still wondering whether or not all this sports science has actually had a measurable impact on injury rates. So we just heard that the sports science departments are really focused on key components collectively used together to hopefully prevent injury. At what point will we see the proof in the pudding? Will we be seeing lower injury rates from athletes? Will it be measurable and observable? My intuition is that we haven't gotten to that point yet, but at what point will it be actually measurable, detectable, that this stuff is working? And if it's not working, will we basically be throwing up our hands and saying, this is just uh, pseudoscience? Not saying it is pseudoscience, but at this point, I'm wondering whether or not we know enough information about the technology to argue that it actually works. So at the very end of Matt's clip, he talked about heart rate variability. Let's hear a little bit more about that. Heart rate variability, it's the variations between the heartbeat, all right? So you're going to, like I said, get that baseline of what the athlete's beat-to-beat interval is, so what they're normally used to. And then you have methods to check uh, with different devices to see how that heart rate changes under high stress. And when you get that that idea of of how the heart rate is changing under the stress, you know that they're going to be in a fatigue state. And so that fatigue state is going to help uh, tell you that possible injury or possible breakdown is, is going to occur. What aspect of it of the heart rate are you actually, in lay terms, measuring? The time in between the beats. So if I'm beating at, say, uh, 60 beats a second, that's one second between beats, it, does it go like one, then two, then a half? Or I mean, is, it really, is that what you're looking at, how it, how it jumps it, around? Yeah, how it jumps around and how the physiological stress... Wow. So that's not something that an ordinary person could measure with a watch. You'd have to have equipment. Yeah, we have equipment to do, wow. to do that. Of course, you have equipment, Matt. I wasn't talking necessarily about what you have available to your patients and athletes in your laboratory, but what the public might be able to assess. So let's just break it down a little bit. We're talking about heart rate variability, not the changes in heart rate that happen as you stress your body more and more. So if you're not working out hard, you might be beating at 120, 130 beats per minute. If you're working out really hard, you might go 150, 160, 170 beats per minute. What he's talking about is not those changes, not changes in the mean heart rate. He's talking about changes in the interval. So if you're beating at, say, 120 beats per minute, that's two beats every second, variability would mean that sometimes the beats are close together and sometimes they're further apart. That's variability in the 
intervals between the beats. That's not something that most people ever, ever think about, and it's not something that you can measure. But what the actual experts are saying, and we've heard it from more than one expert, is this is what matters. This is what you observe when your body is going into a fatigue state, is this extra heart rate variability. Not that you go from 120 up to 180, but that if you're at a constant rate, average rate, your interval time is wobbling a lot. It has high variance. And I think this is extremely interesting. Again, I'm going to stand back and say, how much proof do we have of this? But this is certainly a variable of great interest to the experts. And I wonder how long it will take before you can buy a watch that tells you what your heart rate variability is, and it'll show up right there on the screen, right next to your heart rate, but also heart rate variability. And in fact, um, if there's anyone listening out there who's got an idea for a business, put this out there and and argue before the data is who needs data to sell a product. Get it out there and I'll bet you have a nice mass audience. So let's go to another clip where we're talking a little bit about uh, randomization, which we argue is extremely important for measuring effectiveness. Do you guys run experiments? Yeah, we've, we have. We've done it with our sensory training. It's another thing we're very big on at the lab. We do a lot of, we call it brain training for the athlete. So our sensory technology, we're working with a company that, that is new on the market that helps with hand-eye coordination, reaction time, depth perception, and timing. So we're, I don't know if I would say experimenting is the word, but we've had some good success with, with some athletes trying out that technology. Like I said, on a recovery day or on a day when the physical load shouldn't be that high for an athlete, we'll do a lot of these mental simulations, which I think it's, it's a little new to the industry, but it's, it's something that we're starting to get the hang of. Okay, so uh, let's hear one last clip from Matt Reicher, who gives us some advice for some young athletes, um, and we'll close out our discussion of Matt. So let's go to our last clip. Recover is key. I think you really have to make sure you're, you're recovering. And a lot of young athletes like to push themselves. More is better. More is not, not always better. Uh, recovery, sleep, proper nutrition, those are three things that are going to get you, you know, stronger and faster. Uh, it's going to help you way more than, you know, trying to lift heavy weights when, when you're fatigued. I'd say also knowing when you're fatigued, when you're tired, when you don't have it in you, is it's not always great to push yourself. Take that day off, focus on something else, active recovery. But when you really push yourself in that fatigue state, the benefits are, are not always there. I love it. That's great. That's great advice for young athletes who tend to let their mind overtake their body, in particularly with regards to the last point, which is to use your mental capacity to force yourself to work extremely hard, even when you're exhausted and fatigued. And what we're hearing from the experts is this is not a good way to promote efficiency, performance and quality. You need to give yourself rest. Although if we heard from Rick Peterson, it's important, of course, to strengthen your mental capacity as well. And part of that strengthening is to push yourself when you are are exhausted. So there's probably some kind of drawback, but you can push yourself mentally in other ways. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the conversations that Eric and I had in the studio. We'll begin with a discussion that Eric and I had about who has the best chance of hitting 50 home runs and how interesting that is. Imagine a little bell-shaped curve. What Adi has is Adi has the center of the bell-shaped curve for Mike Trout to the right, higher, 
than the center of the bell-shaped curve for Aaron Judge. So the mean is higher. The center of the little bell-shaped curve is higher. But he has a much wider spread for Judge. And so if you think about 50, but they're both below 50, if you think about how much of the bell-shaped curve is to the right of 50, what Adi's suggesting is because of the large variance, Judge has more area outside of 50, to the right of 50, even though the whole curve is shifted a little bit to the left. And that's that's good for all our listeners to understand. You can have a lower mean and a higher variance, which means, yeah, I predict you're going to do less, but if you give me a specific milestone like 50, you actually have a higher chance of getting there. I mean, to put it in, in concrete terms, I'd say 32 to 54 is Aaron Judge's you know, big interval, range. Interval. Big range. And I think Mike Trout is like 38 to 46. So we actually had an opportunity to talk about actual forecasts, and Eric didn't give you his. I gave mine. Mine looks a little bit bad at this point. By the time you're listening to this, it has to be that you are aware that Mike Trout has been injured and he will be out for six to eight weeks minimum, and that suggests that even 42 home runs is not even remotely in the cards if he ends up with 32 to 35 after the All-Star break in total. That would be quite impressive. I still stand by my forecast for Aaron Judge. He has a lot of upside. He seems to have slowed down quite a bit, although since we had that conversation, he's up to 18, but not hitting them at quite the same clip as he was hitting them in the beginning part of the season. And that's That's why I said it was ridiculous to imagine he'd hit 50. It's a possibility, but a remote one, and that a stronger estimate of what he's going to do by the time the season is over is high 30s, low 40s. Um, But there's a lot of variance because as he, of course, could get injured as well. But I think that pitchers and his ability to succeed in the major leagues is something that is yet to be discovered and learned about. So that's that. We'll keep an eye on Aaron Judge throughout the rest of the season. And the, the general conversation was the likelihood of hitting 50. We got spoiled in the 90s with those juiced-up players who hit 50 every year. 50 is really a remarkable, remarkable number for, take away the the steroid era, very, very few hitters ever hit 50. Uh, That's before and subsequently and since. Um, And so we're looking forward to have someone hit 50 who earns it. So our last discussion will be about this uh, Japanese two-way player, Shohei Otani. And he's, of course, uh, tearing it up in Japan, and eventually he's going to come to America And what's interesting about him is that he plays both ways. There's this unbelievable superstar in Japan, this 20-year-old player, Otani, I believe his name is. Did you get to see him or talk about him? I mean, what makes him so remarkable, he apparently is the best pitcher in Japan and the best hitter. (laughs) And he's 20 years old. Yeah. Simultaneously. And he wants to come to to MLB within a few years. And to be what? Like, we have another Rick Ankeel situation? Or is he Babe Ruth? Is he Babe Ruth? That's the question. And he wants to do both. Shocker. The silence in the room is is deafening here. Well, I mean, he wants to do both, and he seems. I I mean, you're you're hitting our natural skepticism towards, you know, (laughs) people that are able to do that. What would stop him from playing first base? I'm making this up. On days one to four, and on day five, he's on the mound. If he's one of your best starting pitchers, you don't risk the injury. All right, I said first base. Notice I didn't pick a random position. He's he's not moving around that much. No, maybe it has to do with rest. He's not getting the proper yeah. rest. But you don't throw the ball a ton at first base. I don't I'm think just that's asking. why they stop them. I think it's because they need to work full-time on one and not the other. 
So this is becoming an increasingly interesting question. There are several prospects right now in the minors who are tearing it up um, both as a pitcher and as a hitter. Maybe not the minors, but in the college. In fact, the Wall Street Journal just ran an article talking about the two-way player and how that's the next uh, big thing that is looked down upon greatly by the professionals. And we're not really 100% sure why there hasn't been any success since really since Babe Ruth, who was, of course, successful as a pitcher and as a hitter and eventually was told he had to pick one, and he picked the everyday player, and he became a position player exclusively. What Eric was alluding to is the possibility of playing four days in the field and one day at the bat. My hypothesis, which I tossed out at the end, has to do with what I believe is the inability to succeed at two things because you only have one person and you only have one set of training goals, and you really can't be world-class at two things unless you devote yourself 100% to training at those two things, and of course you can't devote yourself 100% to two different things. And that's why we will never have a superstar at both both a position player and on the mound. Although you can have players who are really pitchers who just are really good hitters, at least relative to other other pitchers, which I think is extremely valuable. One of the great weaknesses in the National League is the inability of a pitcher to hit at all. I mean, forget about even hitting 200. That's the so-called Mendoza line. But hitting 100, hitting anything and any quality at-bats that you can get out of the pitcher has immense amount of value to the team. And for lots of reasons, which I won't explore right now, but if you can explain Extract value from your pitcher at the plate that has an enormous amount of utility to a team, and I think it's actually underappreciated. So I think the question shouldn't be to try to make a pitcher and a hitter at the same time, but really get great hitting pitchers, and you will find yourself with a lot of value. So that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Don't forget that you can listen to the entirety of our show on SoundCloud or at the Apple Store under Podcasts. And you can listen to the entire show live when you listen on Sirius XM 111, either Wednesday mornings from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM Business Radio 111, or any of the times that it is replayed throughout the week. I want to shout out to our our producer of our podcast, Danielle Bruno, and our producer of our show, Matt Johnson. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your analytics, and enjoy your sports. 